Welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read about teen murder squads so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read Scythe by Neil Shusterman. Joining us to discuss this deadly dystopia is Angie Manfredi, librarian, writer, current Midwesterner, and a person so passionate about the arc of a Scythe series, some might say it's become like a cult for her. Hello, Angie. Thank you for having me back. Always a delight. Yes. Uh, longtime listeners may remember Angie for discussing Theo Boone, Kid Lawyer with us, uh. for discussing <laughs> Wonder with us. And so, um, you we know, we decided what? to let her read a good book because we feel so bad. <laughs> yeah. Much like how cats can have a little salami as a treat, um, Angie can have a little scythe for a treat. It is a treat. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a book, I mean, full disclosure, I read this before we picked it for the podcast, and I really like it, and I really just want to talk about it. And so right up front, I think we're all going to say this is not really like a worst book, but it is a bestseller, it is a popular book, and I think it's fine if sometimes we're just like, you know what, sometimes bestsellers are good, though. Sometimes popular books are good, and also wildly off the rails, but also good, and I think that's fine. (laughs) and that's one thing i want to say another thing i want to say is we're going to fully spoil this book so if this is one where you've been like oh maybe i will read this one day i maybe put this podcast on pause and come back if you don't want spoilers because it will be spoiled um also i want to say content warning kind of for kind of for suicide but not really because the concept of suicide doesn't really exist but i don't know if you're not in a headspace to listen to people to to talking about like jumping off a building people do that but then they're fine because it's the future and medicine got real good in this um fourth or fifth i forgot what list i'm on i'm counting them on my hands but i just have a handout now um i also want to say um most recently we mentioned angie because her the book that she edited the other uh, the other f word was in our best and worst of the year Best, oh, best a, of the year. As a best. Yes. Thanks, pals. Let's yeah. I was excited that. to see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Angie. Your book sucked. It was the worst of yeah. 2019. Surprise! <laughs> no, JK, it's very good. If you haven't read it, you should read that. But also, um, Scythe. Um, finally, I want to say, finally of my preamble, not finally of Scythe. I have so much to say. Um, Scythe was a book that was an assigned summer reading book for the public school system in the town where I work. And I, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know that there's tons of words that I have learned just from reading. Like, I don't know how to pronounce words. I can't remember. I, I hold the spellings of names in my head, but not the pronunciation. Like, I'm, I'm not the best at pronouncing things. But I got to tell you, this title tripped up so many mm-hmm. people. And so people would come in, you know, parents, teens, everybody would come in. And just if they said anything that sounded like it started with an S, I'd be like, oh, you probably mean scythe. And it wouldn't be, you know, I can kind of get if you come near like, oh, sk- scythe or like skithy. Like, okay. But I think some people would just give up and just their brain would insert some other word that starts with S and be like, do you have like skittle? And we're like, yeah, sure. I know what you mean. Do you have like um, skipper? Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel also feel that I myself am not a hundred percent confident. I keep saying it slightly differently. <laughs> Scythe? Scythe, I think because I listened to the first one and the third one on audiobook, and I think for me hearing it repeated over and over, whether it's right or wrong, thick scythe in my head. Like I can't scythe. say it any other way. Like, okay, I'm gonna try to go with that. 
Do you, Kate, you listen to it. Do you agree? I, I agree. Um, what I was going to say is that I am a person who earlier before we recorded, we were talking about some of the names in the book that Renata had questions about uh, that she was asking Angie and myself because she knew we listened to it on audio. And I, I was thinking I'm the type of person who when I see a word in a book I, with names, I try very hard if I'm saying them out loud to look through it, pronounce all the letters and, you know, cross my fingers because people deserve that. Obviously, that's like basic human decency. But when it comes to words written down, I tend to look at the first, if I don't recognize it, in my head, it's just like this static sound. It's the first letter and then static. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I can absolutely (laughs) understand these people who are like, oh, I don't actually know how to say this word out loud. It's just static in my head. So I'm going to take a swing and I'm going to miss real hard. Yeah, well, and I, as might have come up before, or I think the two of you might know, um, I learned to read phonetically. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I did not learn how to read phonetically. I learned how to read using whole language, which was really popular in the era when I was growing up and also was always suited to really appeal to early readers who who was me. Um, So because I learned how to read whole language, I still don't understand phonics. And people say things like it's a long A or a short, and I'm like, that means literally nothing to me. No, so, same. So everything that I know how to, I via whole language, the only way I know how to pronounce things is by hearing them. I can't sound things out because I don't know how they're supposed to sound. And in case you were wondering if my mother-in-law is uh, literally a nationally recognized phonics teacher, the answer is yes. <laughs> how that's oh, gone let's, over. Let's call her. Let's patch her into this call. She would love that. She literally has a ser- She has a, a whole curriculum on how to teach people how to read uh, with phonics, um, including these like flashcards. And she's like, use the flashcards on me. And I'm like, uh, R? And she's like, okay, let's just have dinner instead um i cannot pronounce something unless i've heard it it's just not gonna happen i can't sound things out because i don't know how they sound so (laughs) yay 70s era hippies Um. (laughs) all right so this this book is the first of a trilogy the whole trilogy is called arc of a scythe and this is one it had been gaining in popularity and like well i knew angie liked it i knew other people i'd seen online liked it but this is one, and I was this way with The Hunger Games, too, where I heard the basic premise, and I was just like, oh, that sounds really upsetting. Like, I don't think I need to read that. I think that will make me feel upset. But then I got too curious, and I finally read it, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's so good, though. And I will tell you, I hardly ever purchase a full-price book for a Kindle. Like, if I'm buying, and I don't buy that many books in general because I work at a library, so I can get whatever I want for free all the time. Um, brag. And <laughs> and if I am buying something, it's usually like, oh, well, I want to support the local bookstore. Or, like, there's an author, author signing, so I'll get this there. So I, and, um, and sometimes I'll buy, you know, the $2 Kindle books just to have them. But this, I read the second book, and I... There was a wait list for the third one at the library, and I was like, that's unacceptable. I will pay $12 on Kindle for this third one just so I can have it right now. And that, I feel like, is the strongest testament I could possibly give a book, just given my general purchasing habits. I agree, and it's the same, it was the exact same thing for me. I never buy books 
because I'm a librarian. Um, no, I never buy books. And the day the toll came out, I was like, I am, which is the third book in this series. I was like, I'm going to get this. I'll pay full price for the hardcover. Like I have to have it this second. Like there was, there was no, <laughs> I had to know, but we will yeah. try not to talk about pop spoilers for the second and third books also because Kay hasn't read them and also because we have so much else to talk about but I wanted to get that out of the way like holy shit I'm all in on this trilogy um and what this trilogy is is about yes um so this is a dystopian sort of uh setting where it's many many years in the future and uh the cloud has morphed into the thunderhead and has become um sentient yes yes and all powerful like yeah yeah i I never know what sentient technically refers to well and and one one thing i'd like to say just at the beginning is that if you neil schusterman calls this a utopia so he does not view this as a dystopia and actually if you hear him talk about it he describes it as he came up with the idea because he thought what if Um, like the worst thing possible happened, but then it was good. And to him, that's what the Thunderhead is. So the Thunderhead becomes this all-knowing, all-seeing AI, but it dedicates itself to helping humanity instead of hurting humanity. So Neil Schusterman, to him, the challenge in this and the way he approached it as a writer was what happens in a utopia? What becomes of humanity when everything is taken care of for them and everything, every need, every want, every urge, everything is, is provided for them. And what if all those stories where there's this AI, what if it's not Terminator, but that AI instead chooses to love and care for us? So. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because when I, I spoiler, I wrote the little um, intro for this one and I called it Deadly Dystopia. And I originally wrote like dystopia-ish, I had something longer because as I wrote the word dystopia, I was like, well, it's not exactly. (laughs) Um, But it's a future society where like things are going awry, but it's, yeah. Um, It's interesting to hear you both say that because I was operating under the assumption that something happened in the next two books that made it into a dystopia. Well, yes, yes and no. (laughs) Well. But, but we'll put that aside and we'll just continue on this book, which is that yes. it's the future. Uh, as Angie said, uh, there has been an all-powerful AI that's taken over, but instead of uh, ending the world or enslaving humans, it has focused on how to make life better. People live indefinitely now. They, every once in a while, what do they call it? Turning a corner? Turning yeah, a Turning a corner, you can get de-aged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Down was- anywhere to your early 20s. Um, people have huge families. Uh, disease has been wiped out. Everyone has like nanobots in their blood that mm-hmm. control their pain and control uh, healing. And if anyone does die, um, not, they're like, revived. They're, yeah, they're... they don't. They don't use the word dead. They use dead-ish. So mm-hmm. you can you know fall off a building and oh you're dead-ish, but you'll be revived. Yes. And the only way to permanently die. Is if a, a scythe kills you. Dramatic and they, music. Dun dun dun. Yes. Um, and then that's called gleaning. Yes. Um, and the size, obviously, like population control became a problem. Uh, so they decided that what all that was left to do to deal with that would be to make um like a, a class of of people who their job is to randomly kill people. 
Um, and that is, it's as Renata said, it's called Gleaning. Um, and that is their mission. They have, they're like the most sacred rules that they have to follow about who they can kill and why. They have a quota they have to fit. Um, some of them go at it from different points, but it leads the entire society to like equally fear and revere them um, because death is gone. There is no natural death anymore. Uh, people don't die. The idea of mortality is foreign to most of the people who are alive. So the idea that there are these people who can deal out death and it's permanent is, as I, you can imagine, like fascinating and disgusting both to folks. And this is the only aspect of people's lives that is not controlled by the Thunderhead because the uh, human, the humanity of the mortal age and the AI, like they kind of got together and like, no, it's inappropriate for me and ageless AI to have anything to do with this. So the Thunderhead does not interfere at all in Scythe business. They're not even, the Thunderhead operates sort of like a mega Siri where it's, you know, it's kind of always watching. And if normal people are out and about, it might say like, oh, remember, it's your friend's birthday or like, this is coming up, but it will not interact at all at all with size in any way, even if they want it to, it can't. And I think, I think another thing about the Thunderhead is the Thunderhead also doesn't just act as Siri, it has become in this universe, though people don't talk about it, it's become God. And it is it asks the question, what would you do if God talked back? Because you can say to the Thunderhead, hey, Thunderhead, what should I do when I grow up? Hey, Thunderhead, can you help me feel less alone? And it will talk to you. It will say, hey, Angie, I want to answer your questions. So it not only is your personal assistant, it's also God to you. And I think that's something that's really powerful with the way it doesn't get involved with Scythe affairs. And that also really lends to that idea that he, Scythe is trying to give some, their sides are still a thing that are untouchable by what you know as God in the universe. And so the amount of power and intrigue and danger and amount of plot, all of that put in there, he set up for this. It's just really amazing. You know, in a realm that's untouched by what you know and experience as God, what 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 are these people like? Yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting concept. Um, and it's not to like delve super into it right now. But so I, I due to scheduling reasons, I had to listen to this whole book over like 72 hours. And while I was <laughs> in the middle of it, um, my dad called. And uh, right now, as you may have seen on Twitter, like my family's got some stuff going on. Um, my grandmother has been in and out of the hospital um, and her standard of living right now is uh, weird. Uh, I'll say without going into too much detail. So pausing listening to this book to stop and take a call from my father where we talked about like end of life plans and like caregiver needs and you know, planning for what happens when you lose your independence was a mm -hmm. fucking trip. Mm -hmm. It was weird as hell. And it definitely colored uh, the way that I listened to this book um, and my thoughts about it, for better or for worse. So it was just, it was just a real weird juxtaposition. Um, but anyway, back to the book. Uh, so the book yeah, so opens... It, it's, it, yeah, it, it introduces you to the world of size and... Um, by the way, between every chapter are these little um, um, excerpts from Scythe journals, mostly from historical size, where 
that's part of the scythe code is they have to keep a journal of everyone that they glean and kind of their observations and the older journals also will give you this kind of history of the shaping of the society so we're getting that um, and then we are also getting like in real time in the present of the book the reaction as um, scythe faraday shows up at the house of citra and her family citra terranova and her family at dinner time and they are terrified because because of you know info dump about sides and he kind of fucks with them and he's like hey um yeah he they have this- meals so because of like the reverence that people have for society for the sides in society basically anything a scythe wants they can ask for and they will they're more or less required to be given by the folks around them um and the idea is that like a, a scythe it should be almost monkish in that they don't uh they, yeah, they're they only be- allowed the only things they're allowed to own are their scythe ring and their robes and their journal and everything else like housing is provided for them but they don't own the house um they can receive a meal for free but they don't actually get money to pay for the meal they just like get the meal that they need and so they're not supposed to be like these rock stars they're supposed but they do get what they need yes um so scythe faraday asks for a meal um, with Citra's family and uh, her mother and brother and father are k- kind of... They're like brother- on their best behavior. Yes. Her- well, yeah, the brother's nervous, but they're all very on their best behavior. And Citra's like, okay, if you're here to glean us, like, just get it over with us. Like, she is losing it with this kind of pretense of, like, that this is just another normal meal with a normal visitor. Yes. And so her- the... <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to keep cutting you off. Go for it. Wrap it up. So so Citra, uh, she kind of takes an attitude with the scythe. She has questions for him. Um, she just does, doesn't just go along with it. And they find out the scythe is actually there to glean their neighbor and not them. And as thanks for uh, the meal, he gives the, uh, the scythe, Scythe Faraday, gives her mother immunity for a year, which is something that scythes are capable of granting, um, immunity from being gleaned. So he gives it to her mother as uh, thank you for the meal. And he also, all scythes give one year of immunity to all of the living family members of someone who they have gleaned. All the, all the household family members. Yes. Um, also, this sets up something that's an important mechanic of immunity, which is you get it by kissing the size ring, and then your saliva from kissing the ring gets immediately, like, um, transmitted to the scythe database so that all the other scythes, like, have you on their no-kill list. And so that idea of, like, DNA plus ring equals immunity is introduced very early on. And that's important. Right. And... Immunity is that no other scythe can re- can glean you for one year. So you're safe from being gleaned for one year. That's what immunity is. And everybody in their society obviously really wants it because... And it's also supposed to be a comfort to your family member that another scythe can't show up and then kill somebody else. <laughs> yes. So then we cut to Rowan, who is our uh, one of our other POV characters. Uh, he is visiting his friend Tiger in a revival center. Tiger is a kid his age whose uh, main pastime is something called splatting, uh, which is jumping off tall things and dying in the most extreme way possible 
for funsies because you don't die. You're just, you're deadish. You're taken to a revival center and you come back. And uh, Rowan and Tiger are both middle children of large families and largely overlooked. Uh, they call themselves lettuce children because, you know, there are there are people in their family who are the bun, there are people who are the meat, there are people who are the cheese, and they're just the lettuce, which is incidental and forgotten. And there's a lot of kids who feel this way in society now because parents live so long, they have multiple, like, families, they have a lot of kids, and so some of them, it turns out, you just maybe don't care about as much anymore. <laughs> yes. Um, so Scythe Faraday shows up at Rowan's school. Um, and Rowan, after leading him to the principal's office and discovering that he's there to glean a student, uh, Rowan also gets kind of an attitude about it while everyone else just kind of falls out of their way to let Faraday do his thing. Rowan insists on, um, being in the room with the kid that he, that's being gleaned to support him and as like a show of defiance a little bit. Um, and after words... Scythe Faraday is clearly, like, minorly impressed at this kid's chutzpah. So both Citra and Rowan get invitations to go to the opera. Um, They're not sure who the invitations are from. And when they show up at this very fancy opera box, they discover that the two of them did not send them to each other, but a third party sent one to both of them. And of course, that person ends up being Scythe Faraday, who explains to them that he wants them. He was impressed by both of them. And uh, eventually, after also taking them to an art museum and explaining um, some of the ways society has changed emotionally and fundamentally between the age of mortality, as they call it, and uh, current times, he invites them both to be his apprentice. And normally, size will take one apprentice, train them, over the course of a year, uh, take them to several gatherings of all the size called conclaves, where they'll be tested on their knowledge and skills. And if they pass the test, they will be turned into scythes at their, or given, granted, inducted into scythehood at, at the final of these conclaves that they attend as apprentices. What he tells them is that one of them will become a scythe at the end of their apprenticehood and the other one will just be allowed to go back to their family. No big deal. Um, But he is just interested in seeing the way that the two of them working together will impact their like apprenticeship. Um, So we, we get a lot of um, overview of like what life is like for size. Um, We go grocery shopping with Faraday and the apprentices and we see how that works. Uh, We learn about the connections they are allowed and not allowed to have in the general world. And parallel to this, we are introduced to another concept, which is that of mass gleaning. Um, We get a cutaway chapter of a a character, a scythe character who's wearing like very ostentatious glittery robes uh, and is with a a bunch of other scythes. Like with actual actual gemstones embedded into it, like actual Uh diamonds and actual emeralds, like... You know, not not just like um, this is a metallic robe. Like this is fucking fancy. Yes, um, and I, it's a group. Go ahead. I think it should be noted too that the robes are a thing that the size added to look like from the age of mortality's uh, idea of a grim reaper. So that's a thing. Like with teens, when I'm book talking this, or when I'm kind of explaining it to people, like they are fitting what we the age of mortality knew as a grim reaper, and then they turned it into their own thing. Hence the robes and then the robes turn into such a cool thing. 
And oh, I, yeah. Yeah. And this, the, yeah, that's something that was introduced um, in the beginning info dump where they're not allowed to wear black robes, though. Right, like, because can, it's too creepy. But when you, you become a scythe, you pick your robe color and your aesthetic and most people do not put fucking gemstones on it. They just put, right. like, a color. And so Scythe Faraday is an ivory robe wearer. And the other thing um, is you... Faraday is not his given name. Like, when you become a Scythe, you retire your given name and you pick a patron historic. And so they all take the names of notable figures from history. Um, and that, I think, is fun. And I think, I think so many successful YA franchises have this kind of, like sorting hat aspect of like you know you're you're in this age when you're trying to like figure out what your personality is and what your values are and like I think that's a great one like what historical figure would you name yourself after Michael Faraday and I'm ivory robes and that's my that's my identity yeah but um the these mask leaning size they wear very fancy robes and for the first few times we check on them we don't know any of their names they're sort of these mysterious ominous figures who are and this is in comparison, we've been seeing Faraday and Faraday doing all this careful research, and he is trying to uphold statistics of, like, well, in the mortal era, like, 3% of people died in parking lots, so we'll go kill somebody in a parking lot and mark that in my stats. And, um, and he's very kind and patient to the people that he's gleaning, and it's, like, very ceremonial. And then these mask cleaning people are just like, yeah, we are killing everybody on this plane, and it's... It's not, it's in such contrast to the way Faraday does One it. of the things that I say about this book when I'm trying to convince people to read it, which is I'm trying to convince every person I've ever talked to to read it. One of the things I say about it is the plot is really intriguing. The stuff that we talked about, the AI becomes good. What would life be like without, all that is interesting, right? And that's compelling. But when the bad sides show up, that's when we got a ball game. So, like, the first time I was reading it, I was like, yeah, this is interesting. I'm fine. We're listening to it. I'm like, yeah, this is fine. This is good. And when they show up and kill the whole airplane, at that point, I was like, oh, damn, this is about to get real. And I, to me, that's what the thing that Neil Schusterman does the best in this is that he constantly slips and twists like that. So, like, the first part's really great. It's amazing. You're a genius. But then, of course, there's bad ones. And when I tell people, then the bad ones show up. And as soon as you say that, people are like, go on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so uh, as as we said, um, this these very ostentatious sides come up and they they glean an entire plane's worth of people, and that kind of happens another couple times. A few chapters later, after we see uh, Citra and Rowan learning the trade of of killing um, underneath Faraday, we get another of these mass gleanings in which everyone is killed except for a young girl named Esme, who By the way, is... a fat little girl, and I do mm-hmm. want to, especially mm-hmm. since Andy's here, do do want to talk about, like, bodies and beauty and fatness in these books, which is, there's much to discuss. But anyway, every time we talk about Esme, we are reminded that she is chubby, she's at the food court because she wants pizza because she's fat, but she doesn't die, though. No, she is saved by uh, the head scythe doing these mask leanings, and uh, goes away with them as they leave the food court after having done all these murders. But so, so I mean, st- murder is such a mortal age concept. But go. <laughs> well, and you as the reader, right? So you, everybody in their society has been conditioned to think this is the way it is. And again, here's another great thing I think is a narrative technique. 
you as the reader, because we live in the age of mortality, it is a murder, right? So they have become a nerd to this. But as you as the reader, you're like, man, they're just murdering all these people. But the fact that they, the people in their society are refusing to read it that way, not only in this book, but through all of them, they, it, they continue to get away with so much. So I think that's a great point too. We don't think it's, they don't think it's a murder, but you as the reader are like, so did, did you just do like a mass murder in the food? Oh, you did. Okay, cool. So. Yeah, and it and it's acceptable because they do have these quotas where they have to kill a certain number of people. And so we see Faraday carefully does like one per day and it takes this emotional toll on him. And these people like will kind of save up and then do like weeks of gleaning all at once. And you can tell they enjoy it. And as a reader, it's 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 upsetting, especially when we've been so carefully contrasted with like the good sides. Right. Um, so throughout all of this, we have uh, some insight into the training that Faraday is providing for Citra and Rowan. Um, he, uh, as Renata and Angie alluded to, is much more careful and thoughtful in his gleaning. Um, he sticks to statistics and he kind of uh, impresses on them the need to be compassionate towards the people that they're gleaning and the families to be very careful and thoughtful and put thought into what they're doing. Um, and it's just like, it's these, um, these virtues that you can see that he has as someone, he takes this job very seriously. Uh, he doesn't like it. It is stressful for him, but he believes that it is something that needs to be done. And that he says to them several times, I would not have chosen you as apprentices if you want it to be chosen, because the people who do this should not want to be doing this. Like, this is a terrible thing that we have to do because it's a calling and because someone has to do it, not because we get any joy out of it. Uh, he takes them both to Vernal Conclave. Uh, and it's their first conclave that they're going to. There is, that's where we learn that um, the guy in the ostentatious blue glittery diamond studded robes who has been doing these mass gleanings is Scythe Goddard. Um, and there's anonymous complaint against Goddard about the mass gleanings that is kind of dismissed in a political way that makes it hard for anybody else to bring up like legitimate Well, because, yeah, because Goddard... Goddard comes up and he's like, well, who, who, who wrote this note? I will address your complaint face to face. Like, this is the way we do it. Like, I will not stand for this anonymous complaint. And then no one comes forward. And so he's like, very well, then, like, I will not talk to like you coward. And then Faraday kind of whispers to his apprentices, like, oh, that was a really smart move, because he wrote that note himself. And so now anybody who does have a legitimate complaint against him, like, that'll be tarnished because of of this quote unquote anonymous note. And so it's really setting up him as this power player, but also douchebag. Um, so they, they, uh, Citra and Rowan also have to undergo their first test, uh, at this conclave. Uh, and Citra is asked first by Scythe Curie, who she's asked. What Scythe the, Curie the- is the, is the grand dam of death, by the way. And she, <laughs> She's famous for gleaning the last human president that they had and the whole cabinet. Um, and so since then, they haven't had human leaders. They've just had scythes and the thunderhead. Uh, and as uh, Citra's test, instead of being asked anything about 
um, the art of killing, killcraft, or or anything that she might need to know in order to be a, a, a scythe. She has asked a very personal question about the worst thing she's ever done. And she lies, so she doesn't pass her test. And Rowan, seeing that she has not passed her test, also throws his response to his test. So he also fails the first challenge that they face. And they are still on equal ground. And it's very clear to her that that's what he's done. And very clear to everyone else in the room that that's what he's done. And so at the end of this conclave, Goddard, um, no, one of Goddard's people. It's Scythe Rand, which is my favorite. Um, She... Her patron historic is Ayn Rand. So like, you know, she's a douchebag. She proposes that um, because this is the first time that a scythe has had two apprentices at once, that whichever one is chosen to actually become a scythe has to glean the other one upon after being chosen, which they are horrified by um, because they and Faraday is horrified by it because they had done this under operating under the assumption that if they weren't chosen, they could go back to their lives. Uh, but it is decided that this will is what is going to be done and conclave is over. And that means that there is no returning to this subject. It is closed. And this is what the future holds for these kids. Um, and then um, Citra and Ron kiss. But then they're like, never mind. We can't get into this because one of us has to kill the other. But like, by the way, some sexual tension has been building, if you were wondering. And they've also started to kind of like each other, too, which is the thing you're never supposed to do. You're not supposed to form these human connections with other sides because sides are forbidden from having personal relationships. And that's another key part. They're not allowed to have personal relationships because that, too, would corrupt them into the ways of the human world. And so Citra and Rowan, I think then when you get to that first fail test failure you know they they both have realized that they're in over their heads with this and then comes the complication of that one of them is going to have to die and again that harkens back to how i think neil schusterman is an actual goddamn wizard of plotting things because i i i have to know how he paces things out because every single thing he drops it in there right like right every time you think you're on steady ground he twists it around just it's, it makes reading it compelling and you know Renata when you were talking about how this book is assigned it blows me away that they're letting kids read good shit you know what I mean like imagine this was your summer reading book instead of like Heart of Darkness like <laughs> incredible although I will say like in years past like Hunger Games was assigned and then all the kids hated Hunger Games because they had to read it so I'm sort of like oh please don't though I don't know please like this because it's actually good <laughs> please, please don't make them take it apart just let them read yeah. it and enjoy it yeah um anyway um then we go check in on Scythe Goddard and and now we we know that he's the one doing the mess cleanings and now we see him go to this like very fancy mansion and like just really humiliate the owner of it who to be fair seems like kind of a douchey businessman also but he um, makes him voluntarily lend the house to Goddard and then he makes this man quit his job and become the pool boy <laughs> at his house at his own house and and he's like yeah this is an honor for you and the guy's like oh uh, right and um it's it's unsettling it's gross that's what Scythe Goddard's is up to meanwhile uh Citra and Rowan wake up and they are being contacted by the blade guard who are the special police of the scythes who do like scythe business and they learn that scythe Faraday has gleaned himself which is the only way a scythe can die like no one else can glean another scythe but when scythes are 
you know, they decide they've had enough of living, they can glean themselves. And so he's done that, and they are horrified, and they don't think it makes sense, except that then they learn that since that happened, um, their apprenticeship is over. And so they realize, like, oh my god, he did this to save us so that we don't have to glean each other. Except other sides are allowed to then, like, scoop up these apprentices. So Scythe Goddard has taken Rowan as his new apprentice, and Scythe Curie has taken Citra. So they are still going to have to, one of them is still going to have to kill the other, to glean the other. Um, that is still binding, despite Scythe Faraday's best efforts. Which is a bummer. I'll yes. say. And mm-hmm. Scythe Curie also makes it clear that she stepped in to, she wasn't planning on stepping in to, to take one of them as an apprentice, but when she heard that Seth, uh, Scythe Goddard was, and she is part of an he, old Because he was size. going to take both of them. Yes. Goddard wanted to take both of them, and she was like, well, I knew he just wanted to play you guys against each other, and so I wanted to prevent that. Um, yes, because there is, among, at this point, we've realized that there is a split in most of the size. There's the old guard, as they're called, um, which are size like Scythe Faraday and Scythe Curie, who uh, more strongly believe that they need to stick to the edicts of that were set out for the size, um, to follow the rules, to look at this as a burden that they are taking on rather than, you know, something that they're real excited about. And then there are sides like Scythe Goddard who thinks that there shouldn't be a a cap on how many people they can kill. That killing is great and it's fun and that you shouldn't be ashamed of having to do it and you should like take joy in murdering people. Um, I mean, murder doesn't exist, but that's essentially what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there is a very clear divide among the other sides of folks who side with Goddard and folks who side uh, with the old guard. Uh, one of the things that happens at this point is that uh, Citra asks Scythe Curie how she knew that she was lying. And uh, Scythe Curie essentially, like, asks Citra to talk about what actually happened. And uh, she had said at the conclave that she had pushed a girl down the stairs. And what actually happened is she pushed a girl in front of a truck. Which, you know, again, we're living in this world where that is not, it's like a, a minor inconvenience. Um, and she mostly did it because, you know, she didn't like the girl. The girl was pissy to her in dance classes, uh, and pushing her into the street meant that she had to miss this, uh, recital that she was doing. Uh, Scythe Curie takes Citra to visit Rhonda, the girl that she did this to, and Rhonda's like, oh, well, I, I knew it. Like, I knew someone pushed me. No one believed me, but I knew it this whole time. And Citra's like, well, you can push me in front of a truck, to make up for it. And the girl's like, I'm really busy right now. Can I push you in front of a truck next week? Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's just fucking wild. Yes. Also, but also bigger picture wise, Curie says, well, how I knew you were lying is like, I've been doing this so long. I'm really good at reading people. And that's how I choose who to glean is I just walk around and I just look for people who look like they're um, like finished with life and I can see it in their eyes. And then that's how I know how to glean them. And so we see this in comparison to Faraday, who had his, like, very careful statistical studies. And we also, from this, um, Scythe Curie says to Citra, like, part of the reason why I know you could be good about this is because this has been years since this happened. It still weighs heavily on you, even though she's fine now and she was fine then. Like, this is something that has been dragging you down for so long and... 
for a lot of other people, they would not give it a second thought. And it kind of, to her, is something that proves that she is, you know, a, a, a good person. So over on with Scythe Goddard and his group, Rowan is having a, a much less good time. Uh, they turn off the nanites inside of him that uh, can control his pain and give him morphine and then and heal him and then beat the shit out of him. And uh, it's to make him, you know, understand pain and understand mortality and have a better you know, grasp of what he's doing, but really it's just like this dumb statistic, uh, sadistic thing that is being done to him. Torture. And. Yes. Torture. Yes. By the way, another thing that's sort of casually mentioned in here is that the nanites also can control like depression and mental illness and that Rowan has depression and that his nanites, like he got them tweaked and then um, now his, you know, he has a chemically balanced brain. And that's not a major part of it, but I just thought that was an interesting aspect of it all. Yes. I, and I do want to say one thing with this series is that um, it was clearly written with, uh, like, again, he's thought of things like that. Like, he's thought of people saying, like, well, what about depression or what about queer people or what about – he's thought all of that and he inter- inserts it in the text without ever being like, and that's why depression doesn't exist anymore, everyone. So – <laughs> yeah, the and it's so good though. Uh, so Rowan's training is obviously much more brutal. They, the people that run with Goddard, are much more interested in him learning all of these like violent ways of taking people out. They make him practice a lot on dummies and things. Um, they think that poisons and other like very subtle ways to kill are dumb, and that the best way to kill is to get physically up in there and cause as much destruction as possible. So his, his training is going very differently than Citra's. Over at Citra's, she has visited a uh, cult, I guess, a sort of religious group called the Tonists, uh, who, who worship sound, I guess. I didn't really 100% figure this one out myself. Um, but they we get more about the Tonus than the next two books, and we don't need to know a ton about them right now. But yeah. but again, I think they represent that within this. Uh, again, talking about religion, because another question that I think would come up naturally is, well, not everybody has to be on board with this shit, right? There had to be some people who were like, I don't want in on this, and the Tonists are kind of our first answer to, you know, yeah, be- because the reason Citra has to visit is because um, Curie has gleaned someone who's whose relative who would be entitled to immunity is a tonus so they have to go track him down and be like hey do you want your immunity and he's like no thank you i i do not want it please get out of my monastery and this is the first you know it's very unheard of that somebody would reject this immunity uh yeah and one of the things too that we find out about curie is that um after she glean someone she invites their family for dinner and basically makes dinner for them and talks to them and talks to them about the person who she's gleaned and who they were as a person and then offers them the chance to kill her um obviously she'd be revived if that if when they kill her but like essentially like gives them free reign to take their frustration out on her and she reports that it very infrequently does anyone actually come after her given the chance so we, we see a couple more mask leanings that Ronan is Rowan is at and he hates it. It's he 
the first one that he goes to, he helps people escape however possible throughout the entire effort. Um, and he also discovers that one of the other Scythes working with Goddard, Scythe Volta, also hates the mask leanings and is not kind of the gleeful kill machine that the other ones are. It really weighs on him what they do, and he finds it really upsetting. Uh, but he is afraid to show that to anyone because he believes that, like, he's bought into this idea that this is the future of gleaning, this is the future of size, and that the old guard need to be, you know, to need to die out because that's that's the past and we're looking towards the future. So... Citra's investigating. She thinks Scythe Faraday was murdered. She doesn't think it makes sense that he would clean himself. But she is, like, has to kind of hack into... Not quite hack. But she's not allowed to directly communicate with the Thunderhead. And she's trying these sort of sneaky ways to figure out information. Um, And then she... She's able to figure out that um, by taking pictures around the areas where she figures out how the Thunderhead's uh, pathways work. And takes a lot of photos um, around the area where Cypheridae supposedly self-gleaned and is eventually able to put together um, some information about the night that he self-gleaned and finds out that the like five witnesses that were supposedly there for it have all been granted immunity recently, Mm -hmm. which Which makes her believe... Yes, it's suspicious, and it makes her believe that another scythe has gleaned that that he's been murdered. Um, so she brings these suspicions to Rowan at the next conclave, and he kind of blows her off. They have a, you know, their next test is a sparring match, and of course the two of them are paired together. Uh, Rowan's plan at this point is to throw this entire, you know, competition to get the scythedom so that uh, Citra wins. And as he's starting to throw his fight with Citra, she realizes what's happening and throws it back uh, so that he's actually winning. And he realizes the only way to get her to actually try to be better than him is to pretend that he wants her dead. So he, at the end, uh, he kills her at the end of the fight as a kind of like, hopefully to her, sign that he's taking this seriously and she needs to take it seriously too. While Citra is deadish, the Thunderhead uh, speaks to her a little bit, and because that's then... the time they, the Thunderhead can communicate with her. Because when she's, she's dead. technically dead, she's technically not a scythe. Yes, uh, so it's the only time the Thunderhead actually has access to her. There are we see a couple more of these parties that Scythe Goddard throws, where like professional celebrities come and professional party goers, and one of them is Rowan's friend Tiger. Uh, so he's at this party that Goddard is throwing. Uh, and also Xenocrates, who is the high blade of the size in mid-America, the the main, the, the, the big guy in charge, also shows up. And Goddard kind of orders him around in a very suspicious way. And uh, Volta and the reader put together that Esme, the reason that he has kept Esme with him this whole time, the reason that he saved her is because Esme is the illegal child of Highblade Xenocrates, and that by keeping her there and threatening to glean her, he can control what Xenocrates does and what he rules in favor of uh, and kind of push things towards his own agenda. So Citra says to Curie, explains to Curie that she thinks that Faraday was murdered and tells 
her the evidence that she has gathered to prove it. And uh, unfortunately, along that same time, some of the guards for the size show up and take her away because it has been she has been accused of being the person to murder Faraday. Uh, They produce a piece of his journal that they claim was written about her, um, about how he thinks that she's out to get him because she like stalks his the hallway and stands outside his door at night and she doesn't know what to think. Uh, so she realizes the only way to to make some time for herself to figure out what is going on is to splat. So she does so, uh, jumping off of the tall building that Xenocrates' residence is on top of. Um, and while she's deadish this time, the Thunderhead speaks to her again and kind of explains, like, something is going on. I think that you're on the right track to it. I need you to figure it out because I can't interfere and then gives her a clue, which is uh, a name, and tells her that, like, once she wakes up, like, he has to, the Thunderhead has to go back to uh, not communicating with her, and she has to find this person on her own. She wakes up in a revival center that is very, very, very far away from where she splatted. Curie is there. She breaks her out and explains that she's now a wanted criminal and also explains that the journal page was not about Citra. In fact, it was about Curie when she was Faraday's apprentice, (laughs) uh, when she had a terrible crush on him and would stalk outside his room at night trying to get up the courage to go inside and crawl into bed with him. And he was just an oblivious idiot who thought that she was trying to murder him. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. By the way, uh, where she is is in Chile, Argentina. Yes. And y- you may have caught Mid-America either. We're in this sort of like future times when everything has merged into, you know, just future names of regions. But one of my favorite things is that there's Mid-America and then there's Texas. Yes. And, still- <laughs> and Texas Texas size, by the way, just as a, a trivia bit, only will glean using Bowie knives. They will not glean any other way. If you're a scythe in Texas, you have to kill with the Bowie knife. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, Chile, Argentina <laughs> borders, what, Amazonia? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, and Amazonians, um, uh, it's very independent and they don't like other sides meddling in their business like if you can make it to amazonia you're kind of like home free because their blade guard and stuff will like they don't want to get involved yes um so curie um fills her in on what's been going on that there are people after her explains that she and faraday were actually lovers for several years once she was no longer his apprentice uh and they were caught and they were sentenced to seven deaths and 70 years apart from each other and they have become like kind of casual friends again in the aftermath but that you know this was their punishment for forming personal bonds with other folks so, so Curie gives her directions to follow to escape the, um, the people who are after her and the other size. And eventually uh, they bring her to a house in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when the person on the other who lives there opens the door, it is in fact Scythe Faraday who has... And, and sh- by the way, she thinks she has gotten to the house of the person responsible for killing Scythe Faraday, whose name is Gerald Van something... And so she's like, fuck you, Gerald. I'm going to shoot you. But Gerald is Scythe Faraday because that was his pre-Scythe name. 
Yes. Uh, and he explains that he uh, staged his own self-gleaning in order to free Citra and Rowan from uh, this terrible position he had put them in. And Citra explains like, well, unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. And now Rowan is Goddard's apprentice and I'm Curie's apprentice and we're kind of fucked. So Faraday helps her, um, lets her kind of hang out and do some of the more cerebral parts of her training at his place in the middle of nowhere while Curie goes back to um, the Scythe Council, the the people in charge of the Scythe, and says like, hey, that journal entry was about me, not about uh, Citra. She didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and she is cleared of the murder and returns to Mid-America just in time for the Winter Conclave. Yes, and this is where they um, apprenticize how their final uh, test and the chosen ones get sworn in. But also, um, right before Winter Conclave, meanwhile, Scythe Goddard and his bros have gone over their gleaning quota and they've just like wrecked shop at a Tonus monastery and including like a bunch of children. Um, in the midst of this, Scythe Volta, who was, like, the only kind of good one among that crew, he is overcome. He can't deal with this anymore. He self-gleans in the middle of it, and Goddard wants Rowan to do a gleaning, even though he's not technically allowed to yet because he's still an apprentice. But instead, Rowan kills Goddard and sets the building on fire. And um, earlier, it had been established that a full burning is the only way to stay permanently dead other than like any form of gleaning they won't but if you are burned enough they cannot reconstruct you and so they say in our journal entry history that it's hardly ever a problem now because the thunderhead is so good at at um fire prevention and sprinklers and whatnot but theoretically if you burn someone enough they will not be able to come back so rowan does this Um, Because one of Goddard's, one of the people in Goddard's group, uh, his method of killing is flamethrower. Yes. So there is ample fire around and uh, Rowan kind of makes it seem as if, oh, like the flamethrower went wrong and it just caught fire so quickly that nobody could escape. And all of Goddard's crew were killed. And he dresses up in Goddard's robes to tell the fire department not to put out the blaze because it's Scythe business. And the the fire chief has no business like interfering and he just needs to watch and he can, you know, protect the other buildings. But this particular building needs to burn to the ground Uh, and he gives him immunity with Goddard's ring and then disappears and uh, Winter Conclave comes around or before Winter Conclave comes around. Yes. um, Xenocrates comes to see Rowan and is like, hey, some of this seems a little suspicious. And Rowan's like, yes, but have you considered that I have your secret daughter here? And Xenocrates is like, hmm, yes, excellent point, Rowan. And so uh, he calls off the investigation, but he gets his daughter back. So Esme is sort of safe from this weird hostage situation that she was in. And so that's sort of resolved before the conclave. And uh, Winter Conclave comes and they have their final test. And it turns out that your final test is to glean a family member. Not glean. Not glean. To oh, kill, glean. but they kill will be revived. Member. Yes. And they will be revived. And uh, you still have to do it. You still have to, like, look your brother in the face and fucking stab him. And, it, and, in, yes. and that, again, is a way that you'll be cut off from that life forever. It, it's a yes. way they really want you to kill that, that past self. 
there's no kind of coming back from doing that is the theory. Right. Like yes. your brother, you know, then after that, you can go see your brother at the holidays or but he's going to remember that. Right. And you are too, because at that point you will always become something separate. Yeah. So I, yeah. and I think there's, but I got to add so many of these scenes are so great. The scene where Volta, um, uh, gleans himself and where Volta gleans himself is in the classroom full of dead children. And he looks mm-hmm. at Rowan in the eye and he's like, Rowan, I didn't want to be like this. I didn't, don't be like this. It really instills in you. The, and, and the moment when he cuts off uh, Goddard's head, my husband and I were listening to it in the car and we both went, woohoo! Like, like <laughs> it's so, he, when he, when he cuts Goddard's head off, it's so many of these moments, I think Schusterman, they hit with really great beats. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so this brings us to Winter Conclave and the end of the book. Um, it, you know, reaches this moment where we uh, find out if it's Citra or Rowan who is going to be ordained as a scythe. And it's announced that it's Citra. Um, she chooses the name Anastasia and explains that because uh, she was killed as a child, like we never got to find out like if she would add anything to the world or do anything great because, you know, the, the trend is to pick someone who has made like this great contribution to society, but Anastasia not this, was... just not just the trend. Like, I mean, you kind of have to, and Xenocrates is like, uh, Anastasia is not an acceptable name. And so she's forced to defend it because Anastasia like normally wouldn't be considered someone who had enough of an impact to be your patron historic. Yes. Um, so then she is told to glean Rowan. Um, so she... Wait, sorry. Picked... I, I wanted to clarify that, but then I also, sorry, to let you finish, like, she gives this, like, good explanation that's also a huge call-out of the Scythe Council, because she's like, yeah, see, Anastasia Romanov was, like, cut off too soon, so we don't actually know what she would have done, and I just want this to be a reminder that you almost cut me off too soon when you falsely accused me of murder. Anyway, I'm gonna drop the mic, Scythe Anastasia out in my turquoise robes. It's it's a good moment for her, to it be is. honest. Yes. It, it's the moment where she has to glean Ronan, a Rowan, I keep saying that, um, so she, you know, picks up this knife that she's going to use to kill him. And she says, but first, and punches him in the face with her ring hand and says, like, that's for snapping my neck. And of course, like her giant ring busts his lip open and gets blood all over it that, you know, accidentally, quote unquote, gives him a year of immunity from being gleaned. Yeah. And she's because like, we've established that, like, you don't technically need to have intent. It's just about the DNA hitting that ring. And so everyone's like, well, mm, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she's like, whoops, it was an accident. And Xenocrates is like, well, it wasn't. But there's so much plausible deniability that we can't hold it against you. So congratulations for being fucky, fucking sneaky as shit. Um, and during the hubbub that commences afterwards, she tells Rowan very quietly, like, okay, there's a car waiting for you outside. Now would be the time for you to get the hell out of here. Uh, so he grabs a couple knives and runs the hell out. And the person waiting in the car is, of course, Faraday, who speeds him off uh, into the distance. Into the sequel. Yes. And the very last thing of the book um, is uh, an entry from... Scythe Anastasia or Citra's journal where she talks about uh, this person that is being called Scythe Lucifer who is gleaning Scythe's who deserve it, who like seem to take more joy in killing than, you know, than in, in doing their, their part to help society. 
And that is kind of where we end up. Yes. And it's just, again, I mean, I feel like this qualifies for us to talk about because, you know, it's a popular YA book and it is such a bonkers premise, but it is so well executed. mm, That's kind of, kind of a good wordplay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, bum. Thank you. It's so well gleaned, this book. Um, (laughs) Just every, like, it's so good at, and especially rereading this now after rereading the whole trilogy, or after reading the whole trilogy one time each, and then rereading this one, I'm like, oh, you were, you were setting some stuff up here that I didn't even really notice the first time I read it. And now I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Like, you knew where you were driving this van, and you got there, Neil. Well, that's the plot. I don't want to talk about the third one. The third one I have some things about, but it still is extremely compelling. Um, Anyway, uh, should we move on to our dramatic readings or is there any other little tidbits we want to throw out before we get there? One thing I want to say really quick, the test about killing your family. That was another moment that my husband and I like literally fist pumped, which is that by that time, Rowan has become so, so deadened by Goddard. He literally picks, he doesn't even hesitate. He picks the gun up and shoots his mother in the head and is like, okay, what's next? And yeah. that I that was another moment where you're like, oh my god! Like it, it the build up to it is just really effective. So, oh, and I think also throughout we've seen Citra talking to Curie and Faraday, and being like, no, Rowan wouldn't do this. He wouldn't be brainwashed by Goddard. And they're like, no, you don't see the stuff that he's doing, and he's just trying so hard to fit in and like to stay alive. Um, and but we the reader have the privilege of being in Rowan's head and like knowing that he doesn't actually believe this but it has been this kind of ongoing thing where right will he or won't he is he chill or not yeah and it becomes too it it brings this like interesting thing to light where he is doing some very terrible things in order to survive but also he hates the fact that he's doing them as he's doing them yeah so it's no one is really wrong like when they're saying like oh you should see like the stuff that they're having him do like they are making him do those things and he is doing them but also he hates himself every mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. of it so good all right well let, let us do our dramatic readings and our first one is from uh before Citra and Rowan uh, become apprentices, but when they're on their mystery date with Faraday at the museum. And Angie will be Rowan, who is also kind of the narrator of this chunk of it. And Kate will be Citra, and I will be the Honorable Scythe Faraday. Okay, so I shall begin then. You shall. The address turned out to be the Museum of World Art, the finest museum in the city. It didn't open until 10, but the moment the security guard saw a scythe coming up the steps at the main entrance, he unlocked the doors and let the three of them in without even having to be asked. More perks of the position, Scythe Faraday told them. They strolled through the galleries of the old masters in silence, punctuated only by the sound of their footfalls and the scythe's occasional commentary. See how El Greco uses contrast to evoke emotional yearning. Look at the fluidity of motion in this Raphael, how it brings intensity of the visual story he tells. Ah, Surratt, prophetic pontalism a century before the pixel. Rowan was the first to ask the necessary questions. So what does any of this have to do with us? Side Faraday sighed in mild irritation, although he probably anticipated the question. I am supplying you with lessons you won't receive us in school. So you pulled us out of our lives for some random art lesson? Isn't that a waste of your valuable time? 
The side laughed, and Rowan found himself wishing he had been the one to make him laugh. What have you learned so far? Side Faraday asked. Neither had a response, so he asked a different question. What do you think our conversation would have been like had I brought you to the post-mortality galleries instead of these older ones? Rowan ventured an answer. Um, probably about how much easier on the eye post-mortal mortal art is. Easier and, um, untroubled. How about uninspired? That's a matter of opinion, said Citra. Perhaps, but now that you know what you're looking for in this art of the dying, I want you to try to feel it. And he led them to the next gallery. Although Rowan was sure he'd feel nothing, he was wrong. The next room was a large gallery with paintings hanging floor to ceiling. He didn't recognize the artist, but that didn't matter. There was a coherence to the work, as if it had been painted by the same soul, not the same hand. Some work had religious themes, others were portraits, and others simply captured the elusive light of daily life with a vibrancy that was missing in post-mortal art. Longing and elation, anguish and joy. They were all there, sometimes commingling on the same canvas. It was in some ways unsettling, but compelling as well. Can we stay in this room a little longer? Rowan asked, which made the side smile. Scythe Faraday, he doesn't want to kill people. He just wants to appreciate art. <laughs> well, and again, I think this, and this comes back again because, again, not to spoil it, but one of the main characters, in, uh, uh, and a side character that's very important in the toll is an artist. And their art and how they feel about creating art and what happens to them is key moments in the third book. So does was Schusterman planting that from even here? Like, <sighs> All right. Uh, the next dramatic reading is going to be just me, and this is um, one of the interstitial um, journal entries, and this one also includes the Ten Scythe Commandments. So I'm going to read you those. I will not wrap them. I will simply read this list to you. The Scythe Commandments. Number one, thou shalt kill. By the way, thou shalt kill is like one of the marketing lines for this book, and it's like pretty good. Um, two... Thou shalt kill with no bias, bigotry, or malice aforethought. Three, thou shalt grant an anum of immunity to the beloved of those who accept your coming and to anyone else you deem worthy. Four, thou shalt kill the beloved of those who resist. Five, thou shalt serve humanity for the full span of thy days and thy family shall have immunity as recompense for as long as you live. Six, Thou shalt lead an exemplary life in word and deed, and keep a journal of each and every day. 7. Thou shalt kill no scythe beyond thyself. 8. Thou shalt claim no earthly possessions save thy ring, thy robes, ring, and journal. 9. Thou shalt have neither spouse nor spawn. 10. Thou shalt be beholden to no laws beyond these. And that's the end of the list, and now we're into the journal entry. Once a year, I fast and ponder the commandments. In truth, I ponder them daily, but once a year, I allow them to be my sole sustenance. There is genius in their simplicity. Before the Thunderhead, governments had constitutions and massive tomes of laws. Yet even then, they were forever debated and challenged and manipulated. Wars were fought over the different interpretations of the same doctrine. 
When I was much more naive, I thought that the simplicity of scythe commandments made them impervious to scrutiny. From whatever angle you approach them, they look the same. Over my many years, I've been both bemused and horrified by how malleable and elastic they can be. The things we scythes attempt to justify, the things that we excuse. In my early days, there were several scythes still alive who were present when the commandments were formed. Now none remain, all having invoked commandment number seven. I wish I would have asked them how the commandments came about. What led to each one? How did they decide upon the wording? Were there any that were jettisoned before the final ten were written in stone? And why number ten? Of all the commandments, number ten gives me the greatest pause for thought. For to put oneself above all other laws is a fundamental recipe for disaster. From the Gleaning Journal of Honorable Scythe Curie. Right. And our final dramatic reading is from um, one of Scythe Goddard's sexy house parties. <laughs> and um, Kate will be Scythe Volta, who is also kind of the narrator of this part. And also um, Esme, the girl who just has a couple small lines. Um, Andy will be Scythe Goddard, and I will be Highblade Xenocrates. He beckoned to her, and she sat on his lap, facing the man in gold. Esme, do you know who this is? A scythe? Not just any scythe. This is Xenocrates, the high blade of mid-America. He's Mr. Big. Hi. Xenocrates offered a pained nod, not meeting the girl's eye. His discomfort at this encounter radiated like heat. Volta wondered if Goddard had a point, or if he was just being cruel. I think we met before, a very long time ago, Esme said. Xenocrates said nothing. Our esteemed friend is far too uptight. He needs to join the party, don't you think, Esme? Esme shrugged. He should have fun, just like everyone else. Wiser words have never been spoken. Then he reached behind him out of Esme's line of sight towards Volta and snapped his fingers. Volta drew in a slow, silent breath. He knew what Goddard was asking of him. But Volta was reluctant. Now he regretted being a part of this at all. Maybe you should show your moves on the dance floor, Your Excellency. Then my guests could laugh at you, just as the way you make the entire side done laugh at me and Conclave. Did you think I forgot about that? Goddard still reached back towards Volta, now wriggling his fingers impatiently, and Volta had no choice but to give him what he wanted. The young scythe reached into one of the many secret pockets of his yellow robe and pulled out a small dagger, placing the hilt in Goddard's hand. Goddard closed his fingers around it, and ever so gently, ever so inconspicuously, brought the edge of the dagger just an inch from Esme's neck. The girl didn't see it. She didn't know it was there at all, but Xenocrates did. He froze in place, eyes wide, jaw slightly ajar. I know! Why don't you go for a swim? Please, this is not necessary. <laughs> oh, but I insist. I don't think he wants to go swimming, said Esme. But everyone goes swimming at my parties. Don't do this. Goddard's response was to bring the blade even closer to Esme's unsuspecting neck. Now even Volta was sweating. 
No one had ever been gleaned at one of Goddard's parties, but there was always a first time. Volta knew this was a battle of wills, and the only thing that kept him from intervening and ripping that dagger away from Goddard was knowing who would blink first. Damn you, Goddard, said Xenocrates. Then he stood up and threw himself into the pool, gold adornments and all. And by the way, then he almost drowns because his robe has actual gold in it and it's too heavy. <laughs> and so Rowan and his himbo friend Tiger have to rescue him. Yes. Yeah. It's very good. All right. Um, so normally, this is when we play Would You Rather, but instead um, we're playing a different game called What's Your Scythe Sona? And I would just like for everyone to... Um, you know, if you were a scythe, who would be your patron historic and what would be your robe color? And I don't know. Any any other thoughts that you might have? Um, also, I want to give one example of one of my favorite dumb side characters who is introduced in the next book. And his name is Scythe Morrison. And he is a <laughs> total himbo. And he is like, everyone's falling over how handsome he is. And he is dumb and just like ambitious, but doesn't quite get it. So he's very susceptible to manipulation. And when um, Citra, AKA Scythe Anastasia meets him, she's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's so cool and non-traditional that you would pick a woman patron historic and like name yourself after Toni Morrison. That's awesome. And he's like, what? No, uh, my patron historic is Jim Morrison from the doors. (laughs) And then his robes are made of denim. He has, like, (laughs) faded blue denim robes. Uh, He's so dumb. (laughs) Uh, And again, I think that's that's just one of the things that, like, he does so well. That there's so many details. There's And every character has, like, depth and a story to him. I just just think it's a huge thing of Neil Schuster when he makes you invest in so many of these characters. And... Morrison's a great, dumb old Morrison's yeah, a great example. Yeah, especially because, like, Scythe Morrison, in book two, you're like, oh, this himbo's hilarious. And in book three, you're like, oh my god, Scythe Morrison, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And also, a game that, that I play and that other people I know that have read these books are is, is is finding all the other sides. Like, they're historical. I know the question you're all asking right now is, is there a Scythe Beyonce? And yes, there is yes, there a is. Scythe Beyonce. So, like, uh, that's another thing that I hope that there's going to be supplemental material um, created for this trilogy and one of the things that i'm like i would literally please please let me pay you to go through and write a book about every mention of a scythe and i'll list who they all are let me pay you to do that you don't have to pay me i'll pay you if you let me do that and then you publish it so yeah the the scythesopedia yeah yeah by me (laughs) and i think the extra like wrinkle to it is like you're picking your scythesona when you're like 18 yes yes and I feel like at 18, mine definitely would have been Tori Amos. <laughs> and at, at age, you know, 34, I'm like, that's not the worst pick. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I might lean into, like, the children's literature of it all. Like, is there a Scythe Maud Montgomery? Mm-hmm. Is there a Scythe mm-hmm. Langle? Like... I thought about that. I thought about Lucy Montgomery too, and I I thought there probably was one. For me, I thought about this a lot, and I thought about the writing. But I think at eighteen, I would have chosen a filmmaker. So, and I would have mm. chosen a female filmmaker. So, um, to be like, um, I guess you guys aren't familiar with her work because you're a sexist. Um, yeah. But I probably would have chosen either Alice Guy Blanche, or who dr- the directed the first narrative film. 
um, the Cabbage Fairy, or I would have chosen like Dorothy Arzner. But I also like to think that in the future, I could have been um, like Scythe DuVernay or, mm. you know, like I. Scythe uh, Gerwig. Yeah, yeah. Not not Greta Gerwig. I hate Greta Gerwig. No, if oh, my. Yeah, okay, my we friends. we can't get into it. Yeah, but that's, I would have chosen a filmmaker, I think. Yeah. Right. Kate, how about I you? I think, so at 18, I probably definitely would have chose, uh, chosen Theodore Roosevelt. Mm. And mm. it is, um, like, even now when I was thinking about this in, like, the 45 minutes I had between finishing the book and <laughs> starting recording this podcast, um, like, even I, I still, that was still my first inclination uh, my next inclination was to swing, which is very timely, as Moby Dick is closing today when mm. we're recording this. I was like, well, obviously Dave Malloy. Uh, obviously, I love Dave Malloy. But what I actually settled on was uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner. Nice. Who is, you know, still, if I if I think of historical figures who I'm like, that's the life I want, um, it would be her. So yeah. definitely that, and probably, predictably, um, my robes would be probably either pink or purple. Same. I I'm, would have, like, Barbie I'm, Dreamhouse robes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and the fabric, I thought, I've thought a lot about the fabric, and I don't know about the fa- I would want, like, sweatpants. I think that all the time Ooh. that I would want my robes to be made out of, like, sweatpant fabric. The most comfortable, <laughs> like, when they're talking about, like, the robes were velvet and studded with gold. I'm like, why would you want to wear that shit around? Like, you have to do this for eternity. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. And then, I mean, some of them say that, too. Like, I thought this was fancy and I have to wear it all the time. All the time. So yeah. 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 So you gotta, gotta think it through, man. Yeah. Cotton jersey all the way. Yeah. Yeah, probably that. Yeah. Um, all right. Good game, everyone. Oh, God. We didn't even get to talk about pet mortality. and now there's no time. <laughs> but just Which 10 is seconds. A- when I read this, I immediately assumed, like, oh, cool, then your pets can live forever. But apparently, Neil Schusterman's putting out a book of, like, supplemental material. And he said, like, one of the questions I get asked the most is, like, are pets immortal? And I will answer that in that book. And I was like, wait, there's an answer that might not be yes? Because I feel like definitely yes, they are. Okay, so, uh, like, if- you made a perfect world where everything is taken care of, but your dog still has to die? Fuck off. Like- yeah, are you kidding me? Of course. Anyway, if I, ooh, if you're a side, can you have pets either? No, I don't think you could have any connection. No, I quit. Yeah. Um, just, just glean me, just glean me and let (laughs) Dorita eat me. It's fine. All right. Uh, reader's advisory real quick. Um, any, I I mean, I think this is a great read like for the hunger games. I think this is like just really up there in this top tier, like your uglies, like any of those like very compelling kind of bonkers premise YA books up there with it some more recent comps i might say like marie lou's warcraft books or um the bells which i haven't read the second one yet but um i think i i always say you know if you haven't read his other series unwind they're they're very similar and they have that same pacing and i i think they're another one that um you know kind of takes that concept what i think he does really good is the thought experiment part of it so like what if like how would that play out? So, you know what, Angie, I'm going to be, I haven't read Unwind and it, and it is the same problem I had for a long time with Scythe where just the basic thought premise of it, just hearing about it, it makes me want to throw up. And I'm like, I don't oh, think yeah. I can read and, a book of this. And I got to tell you, it's hardcore. So like Ugh. in the first book, you actually get a, like he goes into what an actual unwinding is like. 
Um, yeah, which, by the way, the, the premise of it, if you don't know, it's it's a future where abortion is illegal, but then when your kid comes of age, you can, like, retroactively abort them and then sell their organs. You can basically. unwind them. Yeah, yes. You can unwind them. And, like, what the fuck, though? I don't want to read that. But then I thought that about this scythe business, and then I did want to read it very much, so I don't know. Oh. Um, the only recommendation that I have is that uh, Moby Dick is closing today, and I'm very sad about it. <laughs> and since last time we recorded a podcast, there is a new Dave Malloy cast recording that you can listen to, and it is Octet, and it is out there, and it is a very, very good uh, chamber choir musical uh, about the dangers and uh, not so and, and good things that come from this internet age that we have found ourselves thrust into. Uh, you can find you know, it. It's, it's mortal era art. So it's way better than gleaning age, um, you know, art. Uh, that's not what they call it. Um, also, to be clear, Moby Dick, the musical is closing. Moby Dick, the yes. book is still it's open forever. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. book is, is still there. It's fine. Yeah. The musical is closing. Anyway. Onward and upward. Yeah, we we'll have like this list on our left. website. We'll have this list on our website, which is worstbestsellers.com. We'll maybe put some other ones up there. Or maybe it'll just say, read Scythe in big letters. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, don't talk to me again until you've read Scythe. Yeah. Uh, candy pairing. My candy pairing is Dippin' Dots, the ice cream of the future, for obvious reasons. Um, I tried to Google skull candy for ideas and I forgot its name of a popular line of audio hardware. So that was a weird <laughs> rabbit hole to fall down. Uh, but I settled on a box of delicious chocolates, but one of them is poisoned at random. And mine would be whatever you love the most. I mm. Whatever you brings you the most joy is is what you should eat with this book because that's what it's about. Your every need being answered the way you want. You know, the Thunderhead has actually just delivered a box of your favorite candy. Yes. Go get it. Yes. There. It's from the it's Thunderhead. On the, it's right there you. on the on your doorstep. <laughs> okay. Um, the Rock, Paper, Snicked, of course, is the game where uh, Kate says who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I will say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Angie can choose which one most enhances the book. Or she can choose paper, which is to leave this book as is, because this is a fucking great book. So that's fine, actually. But but we'll still just give it a try. So if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would be an old guard scythe. Uh, He'd be Mm. an ally to Scythe Curie and would help hide Citra and get her to safety. And there'd be an extended scene of him working to distract and confuse the other Scythes that are on their tail as Citra is being whisked away on her journey. And nothing else in the book would really change. It would just kind of like insert this one other scene of the rock, you know, trying to misdirect the bad guys. Um, I-, I would like to say, by the way, this trilogy it presents a universe in which Wolverine is actually no longer special or unique in any way. And I feel like that would actually be very interesting for that character to pursue. Um, that said, I think um, Wolverine's uh, patron historic would be The Rock. And I think that he would have to go by Scythe The Rock because probably somebody else already picked one of the other famous Johnsons from history. Um, and so as Scythe the Rock, he would, um, I also said that he would be an old guard Scythe, and um, he does all of his gleanings with his adamantium claws, and he drinks a lot to cope with it because, you know, he's not, he's not like Goddard, he doesn't enjoy it, but he is the best there is at it. 
And so people would respect his opinion when he would speak up on behalf of Citra at the Conclave. But of course, he still would be outplayed by Scythe Rand because otherwise um, the book doesn't move forward and I would like it to do that. <laughs> huh. I don't know. I, I would have to choose having Dwayne the Rock Johnson in there. I don't want to see people get killed by Edmantium Claws, even if the person feels bad about it. Whatever. <laughs> 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 but what's the Rocks doing? What's he doing? I, I, I think that he's, I, yeah. I, what's his method? Uh, he just snaps your neck real fast. He just grabs your neck between both his hands and he just snaps your neck real fast. <laughs> oh, that, that's worse. But you're the guest, so you get to pick. Yeah. <laughs> or like, or he kisses you to death or something. It's, it's just, it's oh, fast. Shit. It's real fast. Okay. There's Sign no blood up. involved. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but of course, this is the game where we all win, especially us because we got to read Scythe for those episodes. Yes. Yes. Um, so thank you for playing. And now what do we think the moral of the story is? Uh, my moral of the story is that if someone is really into doing murders, they're probably shouldn't be allowed to do murders. Yeah, big warning sign. Big big warning sign. You know, I think that's also the moral of, like, the true crime industry. I'm not sure, Mm. though. Mm. Um, my moral, I mean, my moral so often is ban men. But I'm adapting to the language of the future. And so my moral is uh, glean men. Yeah. um, My moral is like, um, I think for me, the biggest moral of this is if you get a chance to make out with the guy that you want to make out with, you should go for that because you don't know when you might have to murder him the next time you see him. So like (laughs) seize the moment, you know, where you don't have to murder him because God knows when it's going to come around again. Yeah, no day but today. Speaking of which, ooh, Scythe Larson honestly should have been in the running for yeah. me. Um, At 18, for, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, Jonathan Larson of Rent fame, of course. Um, all right. Now it's time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte will weigh in with his opinions. <coughs> <coughs> Look, Dorote, I agree with you completely. Like, obviously, pets are immortal for their owner's lifespan. Like, I just don't see why there's any question about it. And just because it's not stated explicitly, I think it's just, it's so, it's so obvious that the Thunderhead wouldn't let that happen. Yeah, we'll we'll pick up that supplemental for you so that we can we can uh, uh, comfort you, regardless of what the the outcome is. Like, what yeah. kind of person would say otherwise? Yeah. I'm, I'm throwing this whole thing out the window if that comes out and it's like, oh, yeah, your pets die. <laughs> Come on, Neil. No, they don't. Ugh. All right. Um, If you would like to come online and talk to us here in the mortal age, um, we do have a Facebook, facebook.com slash worst bestsellers. We are on Twitter. We're at Twitter. Nope. We're at we're on Twitter at worst bestseller with no S. Because uh, the S did get gleaned, um, just percentage-wise, one of the letters had to go, and it was the S. We have a Goodreads group that is best accessed by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on the Goodreads link. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, all the places where you find podcasts. If you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it pushes us up on the charts and makes it easier for new folks to find us. Uh, if you don't rate and review... 
Uh, if you do rate and review, we can't offer you immunity from being gleaned. Wink. So <laughs> that shouldn't be a reason why you should do it. Wink. But I'll just leave that there. Um, you can also donate to us like, on Kate, Patreon. That's a, that's a lovely new statement, Ring. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I want to give also it a kiss. Donate to us. <laughs> you can also donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Uh, Patreon is a service where you pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like pay for hosting, pay our editor, etc., etc., uh, in return, um, buy copies get... of Neil Schusterman books because we need to read them immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. In return for that, uh, you get perks as well, like uh, access to a monthly newsletter, uh, postcards, and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, and we also have merch available. If you go to worstbestsellers.com and click on merch, uh, you, you can, can look buy at some all beautiful, of... buy some beautiful robes with our logo on them. We're selling robes now, right? I haven't checked, but I, mm-hmm. I thought we mm-hmm. got those added. But you can do that at worstbestsellers.com and clicking on merch. <sighs> All right. Finally, if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Renata Snacks. If you want to follow me personally, I'm at 14 Across. And if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Miss Kubelik, um, which was a film directed by Billy Wilder. I probably would have chosen him as my. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find Angie uh, in her book that I've already told you about. But in case you forgot or were not listening, um, you should read the, the other F word already, please. That'd be amazing. Out now from please, Abrams. You know what, please, please buy it mm. and read it. Or check it out from your local library or request that your library purchase it. Jazz hands. Um, Angie, thank you so much for joining us, um, past and present. We love having you here. Yes, it was a delight. Call me back when you're ready to talk about Rainbow Rowell. So. Yes, Rainbow Rowell. Also, we might have to do a bonus episode when that supplemental book comes uh-huh. out. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. TBD. Um, but since that is not out yet, our next episode, I believe, will be Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed by Patricia Cornwell. That title has too much punctuation in it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. But I guess we'll read it. Um, Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Bye, everyone.